hopefully you can hear me okay. I've been having a little bit of a cough and um, just a common cold this week. But um, over our Christmas break, we, uh, we were taking a donation. It's what we call our, our share the love um, donation. It's our Christmas miracle offering. And I just wanted to take a moment and say thank you so much. We were able to raise $4,888.22. So thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. Yeah, let's put our hands together. Um, you may be wondering, where, where does that, like, what do you use that money for? Um, that money is used to help people that need, um, like, some people need help with groceries. I mean, uh, the economy is hitting everybody, and uh, for some people, it's hit them a little bit harder than others. And so, over the last few weeks, we've been able to help some people, uh, you know, buy them some groceries. Um, about a week or so ago, I can't remember, we had a, a year and a half old baby in the hospital in ICU in, in Dallas, and uh, we were able to help that family. Uh, they had to take, <clears throat> excuse me, they had to take time off from work. Um, and so we, it's, it's what we call it, share the love. And so because of your donations, and this is above and beyond your tithing, this is be above and beyond what you, um, what you give, but because of your donations, um, we were able to double our budget for that line item for share the love. We were able to double it for 2023. And so I just cannot say thank you enough um, and I just want to share this kind of from the bottom of my heart. Um, as far as ministry, we are going to do, we're going to go as fast as we can, as far as we can, okay? But all of that is based on your faith. And so we will go as fast and as far as your faith allows. And so when you give of your hard-earned money, you know, over 4000 close to $5,000, to help people, 100% of what was given to that, to share the love, goes to help people. It allows us to be, it's what I call visible, tangible love. It's not just saying to somebody, oh, yeah, 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 we, we love you, we're praying for you. No, it is being able to be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. And so thank you, thank you, thank you so much for that. All right, um, I want to welcome you to week two. Everybody say week two of a series called Deep Roots, okay? If you're stepping in for the first time, you picked a great day to be in the house, and let me tell you why. Our topic today is why should I trust the Bible? Why should I trust the Bible? Okay, so if you're here, you're stepping in, um, you may have heard that, you know, we're doing this 21 days of prayer and fasting is sort of a, a church-wise spiritual growth campaign, okay? And so you may come and you say, okay, Pastor Alex, you're asking me for 21 days as the year begins to spend some time in prayer, to spend some time reading God's Word, okay? But why should I trust the Bible? It's a fair question. And I think it's, a, it's one that I think we should answer. Uh, if you want to follow along, uh, I am going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. So we're going to get there in a second, but if you want to follow along, just go there, 2 Timothy 3, 16, reading from the New Living Translation. But before we get there, let me give you a few facts, okay? Whether you're a Jesus follower or not, these are just pure facts, okay? And you don't have to, you know, I, I realize that in, in a group this size, 
Uh, not everybody's a Jesus follower. You may have questions about faith and the Bible, and, and that's fair. You don't have to believe what I believe in order for us to love you. Uh, but let me give you a few facts, okay, that I think it's important for us to know. The Bible is the most read book in human history. There's no other book in human history that has been read as much as the Bible has. The Bible is the bestseller, okay? In human, like there's no other book that has been sold more than the Bible. It is the most translated book in the world. Now the question, why is the Bible the word of God? What makes this, you know, and of course I have my iPad here, but what makes this book that we read, right? What makes it the word of God? And that's the question that we're going to tackle today. Let me begin with this verse from 2 Timothy. This is the Apostle Paul writing to young Timothy, and he says this. He says, all scripture is, help me out, church, all scripture is what? Inspired, okay? All scripture is inspired by God. It's useful to teach us what is true, to make us realize what's wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're doing something wrong. It teaches us to do what is right. When Paul writes these words, that word inspired that you just saw a second ago, in the Greek, in the original language, is made up of two words. The word theos and the word paneo. Everybody say paneo. Teaching you Greek this morning. So theo and then the word paneo. And the word theo, you probably know it, means God. The word paneo means to breathe out. To breathe out. And so some translations, they, they make it a little bit more um, a little bit more precise, I guess. I don't know if that's the best way to put it. They're a little bit more literal. Some Bible translations are a little bit more literal. And they translate this verse and they, they put it like this. All scripture is, say a church, all scripture is God breathe. Okay? So, so what does that mean? Uh, uh, help me understand what, what does that mean? Well, we're not talking, when you look, when you're talking about the Bible, we're not talking about it, just some inspiring writers that wrote some books that are just, uh, just some inspiring books. We're talking about the voice of God. We're talking about literally God's breath. That's what my voice is, right? And today I'm not, like I'm a little bit congested, so it's, it's a little bit probably harder for you to, to hear what I'm saying, to understand me. But essentially my voice is I take air, you know, I breathe. That air goes into my lungs, and then my breath comes over my vocal cords. It vibrates my vocal cords, and it comes out as my voice, right? And so when God says that, when the Bible says that God breathed out the words that we're reading, what that means is that it, these are not just a bunch of good ideas that some people just sat down and, and just wrote together. These are not just a bunch of fables or old-time stories. This is like the very breath of God. This is God's voice. And so, before you make up your mind as to whether the Bible is fact or fiction, what I want to do is I want to give you four proofs, okay? What I personally believe that it is, the Bible, it is the Word of God. Now, when I was in my 20s, um, I was already in seminary. I knew that God, I wanted, I wanted to do something that I could do in my life as far as career that I could help people. But I still had questions. At times, I wondered, Lord, am I, is this a whole game that I'm playing? Like, is this, like, is this like, 
the real, like, are you, are you really, like, how is this possible? And so it was almost like a little spiritual crisis that I had between me and the Lord, and I never told anybody. It was just, I wanted to know, and I'm a very analytical person, okay? I'm a very, like, you know, it's got to add up. You know, two plus two, four, okay, I understand that, okay? Don't just tell me faith, okay? Because if you tell me faith, like, anybody can have faith on anything, right? And so for me, as a 20-year-old kid, I had to come to a point where I said, I truly believe, not because my parents, not because this is what seminary is teaching me, but I want to truly believe that the words that I'm reading in the Bible are really the words of God. And so this message that I'm preaching to you today is a result of 24 plus years of me wrestling with some of these things, okay? Is it fact? Is it fiction? So I want to give you four proofs for you to consider today. The first one is this. I would say that it is historically accurate, okay? In other words, the Bible is not just doctrinally correct, okay? It is correct doctrinally. It's not just theologically on point. It's not just accurate as far as, the, as morality and ethics, okay? It is true history. What do you mean by that? Like, I'm talking about real people, real places, in real time. Now, why is that important? Well, I tell you why. It's important because God cannot lie. Now, sometimes people try to trap me and they say, Pastor Alex, is there anything that God cannot do? And they kind of get shocked when I tell them, yeah, there's a lot of things that God cannot do. You know, God cannot deny himself. God cannot not be God. I know that's not proper grammar, but God cannot not be God. It's impossible for God not to be God, right? Uh, God cannot lie is one of those, those things that I would include in, in, in that equation. Uh, the author of Hebrews says it like this. He says, so God has given us both his promise and his oath. And I love that it, it grabs those two words. This is not just a promise. This is like a vow that God's made to you. This is an oath that he is making to you. He says, he's given us both. These two things are unchangeable because it is impossible. Help me finish the church. It is impossible for God to lie. It is impossible. So is there anything that God cannot do? Yes, God cannot lie. And if you finish the verse, therefore, this is why, we who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold on to the hope that lies before us. So one of the ways that you test history, okay, one of the, whether it's biblical or not, okay, just so you have a, somebody finds, somebody digs up some, you know, some documents, some manuscripts, some scrolls, one of the ways in which historians test whether it's good history or not is they ask this question. They ask the question, is this document, this manuscript, is it an eyewitness account? Okay? So what does that mean? It means that, like, was it, was it written down by someone who saw the event with their own eyes, or is it, like, secondhand? Is it third hand is it a legend that was written down years after the event took place there's a difference right and so historians will ask will ask the question is this document an eyewitness account and the bible 
is primarily eyewitness accounts. That's what makes it good history. So like Moses, Moses was really there when the Red Sea parted and he was so transformed by the event that he sat down and he wrote it down. Joshua, he was really there when the walls of Jericho fell down. Jesus' disciples, you know, they were there. They were in the upper room. They saw Jesus. And so they were so influenced and impacted by it that they're like, man, we cannot contain ourselves. We're, we got to tell everybody. And so they saw it and they wrote it down. Eyewitness account. Now, that's one test. A second way to test a historical document like the Bible is to find out how copies were made, okay? Because you may have heard somebody say, hey, the original documents, maybe they were inspired, right? The original manuscripts, the scrolls that were found, okay, and many scrolls, thousands of scrolls have been found throughout history. Um, maybe those were accurate, but the ones that came after the originals, eh, well, how do you know? You know, because... You know, it's, it was not like they had copy machines that they could just copy it, right? And so I'm sure somebody made a mistake. And let me just kind of just share with you a little bit of how in the Old Testament, how scribes, they were the ones in charge of basically copying the Bible. Here's what they, they would do. They had rules. They had some major, major rules. They're almost fanatic about it. For example, rather than, rather than copying a paragraph by paragraph or word by word, they would, they would copy literally letter by letter, okay? They had in the, in the scrolls, they had columns, okay? So when they would copy one manuscript to the next, they could go back and check. Each column had 30 letters, okay, across. So every line of scripture that they were writing down, they were exactly 30 letters. They knew how many letters of the alphabet a particular book had. So you went to the book of Genesis, and they knew, obviously it wasn't written in English, but they knew how many A's it had, the book of Genesis had. And so they would go and they would count. And so if they counted all the letter A's, and let's just say that the book of Genesis had 1,653 letter A's, they would go back and they would count those copies, and if it was off by one, they would destroy the manuscript. They would do away with it. Okay, They knew the middle letter to each book of the Bible. They knew the middle letter to the whole, the entire Old Testament. They would count forwards and backwards. And if the numbers added up, you're good. If they're off, they would destroy the document. I tell you why. For them, the Bible was a holy book. It was, a, it was like a, a supernatural thing, okay? And so they truly believed verses like in Psalm where it says the word of the Lord and the words of the Lord are flawless. They paid such reverence, uh, like when the word Jehovah appears. Um, so not this one because it's not all caps. But in the Old Testament, anytime you see the word um, uh, Lord, capital L-O-R-D, the word Jehovah, Yahweh, Anytime that appears, they would, the scribes would literally pause and they would bathe because it was the holy name of God. That's how much reverence they paid to it. And so you ask the question, man, how did they copy? I mean, they didn't, the copying of the Bible from one manuscript to the next was not just something that they would just do flippantly. It was a big, big, big deal. 
And so I would say it is historically accurate. Real places, real people, places like this, Areopagus. So real place that they've discovered. Um, this is a, a place in Athens where they would have, um, the, the people of Athens would have their criminal and civil cases, okay? Places like the Pool of Siloam, okay? Um, next picture. Lee and I, we've been there. Um, real places, Jesus healed a blind man there. Now, these are places that did not exist, right? And where we did not know that they, were, they existed. And then archaeologists dug them up, and then they found, oh, yeah, this is what the Bible was talking about. Okay, so real people, real places, and I can give you a number of others, other um, examples. But number one, it is historically accurate. Number two, it is scientifically accurate. Now, what do you mean by that? When I say it's scientifically accurate, I'm not talking about, it's not a science book, okay? So you don't study the Bible to build rockets, okay? Like that's, that's not the purpose of it. Okay, but what I mean by this is that it never gives you bad science, never. Okay, never gives you bad science. One of the reasons why I'd say the Bible is scientifically accurate is because it doesn't change. The same verses that we're reading today, you could have read 200 years ago, it stands true, right? You could have read them 300, 400, 1000 years ago, it hasn't changed. The thing about science sometimes is that it changes, it improves, right? Science is constantly learning, discovering new things, changing things. Like if you go to Paris, um, there's a library in, in Paris. It's called the Louvre Library. There's a section there where they have um, three and a half miles of obsolete science books. Now think about that for a moment. Three and a half, I mean, I would love to go. You know, three and a half miles of obsolete science books. Now, books, why, why, why are they there? Well, they're there because they've been disproven. There was a day and age when it was, it was the science of the day. Everybody believed it, you know, what they said. But now, you know, we've, we've dis basically, we've, we know, we have better knowledge. Science improves. It gets better over time. Well, you don't have that problem with the Bible, right? You don't, you can't say that, oh, you know, it was true a year ago, but it's not true today. It's why why the prophet Isaiah says the grass withers and the, the flowers fall but the word of God endures for how long church? Forever. That's why you may be in church today and you're reading God's word and hopefully your kids you know 40, 50 years from today they're going to be able to read the Bible and they're going to go wow. This is so powerful. And it was just as powerful as it was to you, you know, in the past. Things change. change science changes. Technology changes. There's one thing that remains, and that's the Word of God. Let me give you a couple of examples. I think you'll appreciate these. So, for hundreds of years, people thought that the earth was flat. You've heard that probably, right? So for hundreds, thousands of years, people thought if you get to the edge and you keep going, you're going to fall off, right? It was the common knowledge of the day. It was not like, 
you know, several, I don't know how long ago, but, you know, that was the common thing of, of the day. And it was not until Copernicus and Galileo and Columbus, all those guys, um, you know, they discovered, you know, the explore, explorations and all of that, that they said, no, 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 no. The earth, the earth is not flat. You know, we've gone to the ends of the earth and we came back. We didn't fall off, okay? Did you know that after they had their, their explorations and their findings, they came back and they preached this message. The earth is not flat. And did you know that it took several, and I, I want to say hundreds of years, but I can't remember exactly how long. But it, it wasn't like they came back and they're like, oh yeah, no, we believe that the earth is not flat. It wasn't like that. It took a long time for the, their findings to actually change what the people believed. And so you would assume, if you're, if you're tracking with me, that since the Bible was in existence and it was actually also being written down during an age when everybody thought that it was flat, you would assume that the Bible says that the earth is flat. Are you, are you tracking? Right? Like everybody thought the earth is flat. So if it was not God's word, somebody would have probably put in there the earth is flat, right? But no, it does not. The prevailing science of the day does not make it into the day because it's not true. The earth is not flat. In fact, the, in fact God says this, Job 26, verse 7, it says, As God suspends the earth over nothing. This is hundreds, thousands. Job's was one of the first books written way before we took our first trip into space and we could look back and we could say, oh, look, we're just, just a giant sphere just floating over nothing. In fact, the, the Greeks, they had this, um, this you know, they, they had this belief, I guess, um, that they, they thought that the earth was actually held by a giant. That's what they thought. They thought that the earth was held by this giant called Atlas. Atlas. And if you look it up, if you just type the name Atlas and do a Google image search, you're going to see pictures of Atlas, this giant carrying the earth on his shoulders. Now, you would assume that because, you know, parts of the Bible, like the whole New Testament, it was written in Greek, right? You would assume that it would ad adopt the, the common knowledge of the day, and you would, you would think that, yeah, the, the earth is you know, held by Atlas. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that. Why? Because it's not true. You won't find the name Atlas in the Bible. The Egyptians had a different theory. The Egyptians, they thought that the earth was held by five different pillars. That's what they thought. No, no, it's not Atlas. It's, it's five pillars, okay? And um, Moses, we know that he was adopted by an Egyptian family, Remember Pharaoh's daughter adopted him? And scripture says that Moses had the best training ever. He had the best Egyptian education ever. He was taught the prevailing science of the day. Okay? Like he went to the best of the best. And the Egyptians, man, they were, they were flat out brilliant. They're the ones that build the pyramids, right? Like they were masters in, in math, engineering, like architecture, astronomy. I mean, like there was nobody as advanced as the, as the Egyptians. And yet Moses, in all of his writings, right? The first five books of the Bible, right? Written by Moses. 
in all of his writings, nowhere with all of his Egyptian training and education, nowhere does he say that the earth is being held by five pillars. Why? Because the Bible is scientifically accurate. It never gives us bad science. And that would have been false. So the prevailing science of the day did not make it into the Bible. It's what Proverbs says. Every word of God is flawless. Every word. It's, it's literally God's breath. It's God's voice. Jo, uh, Johannes Kepler said, famous math genius and astronomer, he said, science is simply thinking God's thoughts after him. I love that. Science is just thinking God's thoughts after him. I, I've always believed science is just catching up to the Bible. The Bible is so far ahead of us. We look at it as an ancient book, and it is an ancient book, but in many ways, it's a book of the future, okay? And so number one, it is historically accurate, real people, real places, real time. Number two, it is scientifically accurate, like it never gives you bad science. Number three, it's prophetically accurate. And I could give you, I mean, so many verses of how, like, there were some things that were said in ancient times, and they actually became true, especially about Jesus. I mean, in detail, the Old Testament talks about how Jesus was going to come from Abraham, the tribe of Judah, in Genesis 12, if you want the reference. Um, how uh, his name was going to be Emmanuel, how he was uh, like the prophet Micah said he was going to be born in Bethlehem. Like his ministry is going to be in Galilee. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1 and 2, that he would be buried in a wealthy man's tomb. Like we have detailed accounts from Isaiah, from Micah, from Genesis, telling us how, how, like, how about the Savior. One of my favorites, because I could give you hundreds, but I'll just give you one, is in Psalm. Psalm 22 it's a prophetic psalm about Jesus on the cross. And uh, it's so interesting. It says this. Um, it says, my enemies surround me like a pack of dogs. Now, I don't know if you know this, but this, the, the people that actually literally put Jesus on the cross was the, the, the Romans, okay? So the Jews were the ones that accused him of blasphemy. And, but they did not literally kill Jesus. They're the ones that accused him. The Romans were the ones that mocked him all the way up to the cross, especially, specifically the Roman soldiers, okay? Did you know that the Romans were considered Gentiles? And did you know that the Gentiles, this was sort of a, a racial slur, the Gentiles were called dogs, Okay, by the Jews. It was, a, it was a, 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 an ugly term that they'd use. Now, how would the psalmist know that one day the Messiah would come and that it would be, not the Jews, but actually the Roman soldiers that would surround him and slap him and put a robe on him and a crown of thorns and tell him, oh yeah, you're the king of the Jews? Yeah, save yourself now. There's no way. And so the psalmist says, my enemies surround me like a pack of dogs, like an evil gang closes in on me. They have pierced my hands, my feet. How would they know what was going to happen? Verse 18, they divide my garments among themselves and throw dice for my clothing. Now, you fast forward 
hundreds of years into the New Testament. And there's a guy named John, one of Jesus' disciples. And he's there, eyewitness account. He's seen Jesus on the cross. And he's transformed by the event. So much so that he's like, I got to write this down. I got to let everybody know. And hundreds of years after Psalm was written, John writes these words. He says, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, watch this, they divided his clothes. His clothes. This is, this is John's account. This is his opinion. This is how he saw it, right? Among the four of them. They also took his robe, but it was seamless. In other words, it was expensive. What Jesus was wearing was expensive. Woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said, rather than tearing it apart, let us, let's throw dice, let's, let's, let's decide by chance who's going to get Jesus' garment. Now, how in the world would the psalmist know that hundreds, thousands of years earlier? Like, it's, it's, to me, it's, it's crazy. And so, yes, a big, 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 big yes. You can trust the Bible. It's historically accurate. It is scientifically accurate. It is prophetically accurate. And the last thing, I'll close with this, it's thematically unified. What do you mean by that? From the beginning, from beginning to end, it's one theme. From the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation, it's God pouring his heart over you and saying, I would like for you to be a part of my family. It's God pursuing you. It's God telling you story after story to prove, to prove that, to prove his love to you. And so consider this, consider this. The Bible was written by poets, you know? It was written by prophets. It was, the Bible was written by princes and kings. Some were sailors, some were soldiers, some were attorneys, some were doctors. It was written by common people, and it was also written by very well-educated people. It was written in caves. It was written in homes. It was written in palaces, and it was written in prison. All kinds of people wrote the Bible. Now, if you have one guy, you have one guy writing one book, you would expect to have a unified theme, right? Like the Quran, one person, Muhammad. Like you would expect it to have one theme, that makes sense. Like the, the writings of Buddha, right? One person, one view, one perspective. Yeah, that makes sense, it's, it's, it's one, one thing. But when you look at the Bible, you could not ask for a more diverse group of people. You have some were fishermen, some were tax collectors, others were scholars, some were businessmen over a period of 1,600 years, all coming up with the same story. Goodness gracious, you, we can't do that. Only God can do that. And so when you read Scripture, you're not just reading a book that has some science, some history, some 
some, some things about the earth is suspended, you know, over nothing. You're not just reading that. You're, you're reading the very, you're, it's the voice of God. It's God's breath. And the ultimate purpose is to pursue you and me. Because he loved you that much. He is for you. So with heads bowed and eyes closed, I just want to, I want you to settle this once and for all. Like it happened for me when I was in my 20s. This was not something that I heard from a seminary uh, teacher. This was not something that I heard from, from, um, you know, my parents. This is something that I decided on my own, digging in and, and, and studying what the Bible actually said. And so hopefully I've given you a little bit of an appetite. And you can leave today and you can say, God, I want the Bible. I'm going to believe it, God. I'm going to see it as the flawless word of God. And I want your word to be the final authority in my life. Because when you don't, you're basically making it on your own. You're on, you're on your own opinions. You're, you are the, you're settling as a, the, the ultimate authority. So I would ask you, how is that working for you? I know it has not worked for me in the past. So if today you want to settle it, would you just pray? This is my prayer. This is not like, you know, not, nothing special. But would you just pray this prayer? You can say it in your own words. You know, these are my words. But would you just say something like this? Say something like this. God, I just, I want to accept you. The Bible is your the flawless word of God. I want to make it the final authority in my life. Not what TV says, not what the latest clip from, from YouTube says, not what popularity says. God, I want to accept what your word says as the final authority. When I don't understand it, I'm going to go with it. When it's not popular, I'm going to go with it. When it's not easy, I'm going to go with it. When I don't like it, I'm going to trust it. And God, I declare that today you are God. I'm not God. And so God, thank you for loving me enough to speak to me through your word. Thank you that, that you're not silent. Thank you that you spoke through about 40 men and women over a 1600 period of time, three continents, three languages to tell me one story. And that's that you want me to be a part of your family. I am in, God. I'm in. Receive me. Help me. Challenge me. If that is your heart, I'm not even going to ask you to lift your hands. But if that's your heart, you want the Bible to be the final authority in your life. We're in the middle of these 21 days of prayer and fasting. I want to challenge you. If you want to be a part of our devotional, just text the word Bible to our church number. It's in front of the chair, the church in front of you. That's our, our phone number. You text the word Bible and it'll automatically send you a link. And you'll be a part of a, our community. Nothing would thrill me more than to have a church that's starting the year by surrendering their lives to the foundation, to what matters most. And so would you take the challenge? God, thank you for speaking to us. You're so good. We love you.